Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, could variable annuities be making you a better investor? We're going to debate that coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined by my partner and friend, Dan Maseka. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Ross. Good to be back. How are you doing on this Memorial Day weekend? I am doing fantastic, and there is a chorus of cicadas going on, and I believe that I'm alone in this. You you don't have any up near you, do you? The funny thing is I can hear the cicadas. It's pretty loud, but I haven't seen a single one in my neighborhood or in my yard. I, I don't even understand how that can be possible. They are all over my house. I'm not upset. I'm pretty happy not to be dealing with them. I remember vividly 17 years ago trying to uh, just go about my life with these idiots hitting me every second of the day. Uh, But it is a little bit disappointing that I don't get to see them after all the fanfare about their return. Yeah, I I remember it being worse, uh, the the 17-year-ago one, um, or or however exactly long it was. I remember it being worse than this and just like the shells or the carcasses or whatever just everywhere. Um, but that, that hasn't been the situation, but I do have a lot of them. And in particular, one of my dogs basically thinks it's like a feast. Like he, he just wants to go outside and eat cicadas all day. And that's what he would do if we would let him. He's probably not wrong. I've, I've been watching a lot of these nature shows with my daughter and anytime something like this happens, they're always highlighting a species that suddenly gets to enjoy all this food that otherwise wouldn't. There's a pretty intense hierarchical society within monkeys and the bottom rung monkeys never get to eat anything because they have to defer to the the senior leader monkeys. But when something like this happens, there's food everywhere for them and they finally get to enjoy their lives and have something to eat. And that, that for some reason, that's what I think about now that the cicadas are out. Oh, huh. all right. Well, that, that's kind of interesting. There's actually a similar story to that. Uh, I'm finally listening to it as an audio book, the book about trees that Morgan Housel recommended on our first uh, show. Oh, cool. The Hidden Life of Trees. Um, I finally felt comfortable starting that. I've I've been uh, studying for the last few months, and and so I really wasn't uh, reading anything or or listening to anything purely for leisure uh, during that period. But uh, now now that I've got level two of the CFA exam in the rearview mirror, I don't know how I did yet, but... uh, uh, at least the pressure of feeling like I need to study every day has has been removed, and and now I can go back to to learning some fun stuff and and uh, enjoying it. Yeah, we go about our life, and and you and I talk almost every day, and I keep forgetting that that's a huge thing that's a part of your life, and I so much take for granted all the work that you do in our business, and you know it escapes me that you probably spend four hours a day just preparing for these exams and studying. Yeah, I mean, definitely in the last few weeks, it, it, it was heavier and, you know, kind of tried to make the final push. And, uh, you know, we'll, again, we'll see. There's there's uh, no, no guarantees in an exam that basically has a 50% pass rate. So, uh, you know, fingers crossed and, and hope I did enough. But uh, if not, we'll keep at it. Yeah, hopefully you did just enough to pass and not a second more studying than you needed no to. No kidding. 
So let's get into our topic today. And and this came up because I saw an article, uh, I guess, late last week. And Dalbar has a new study out. Now, Dalbar, I actually had to start with, like, what is Dalbar when, when I started to research this? Because they have a study that financial advisors have been quoting as long as I've been a financial advisor. Um, and it is basically this statistic about how deeply most investors underperform the very instruments that they're in right and 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 so the the story that's sort of being told is that you know mutual funds or etfs whatever those aren't the problem the products do fine it ends up being a behavior issue uh and i i do think that there's some element of truth to that uh probably not as much it seems as as what they're claiming uh it seems several other academic financial people, Dr. Wade Fow and, and others have taken issue with how Dalbar does that math and, and exactly what they're presenting. But they have a new study out. And what they are trying to tell us here is that investors that had variable annuities and annuities in their portfolio did better in 2020. That's kind of the core thesis. And so it brought to mind for me kind of this little bit of a philosophical debate between should we be trying to train ourselves to be better investors? Should we be trying to overcome the potential bad habits and mistakes that we could make as investors? Or should we be looking for products that make it much easier for us to overcome those same things, right? Should we be trying to work on ourselves intellectually to not make a mistake? Or should we basically put in the equivalent uh, in my opinion, of the bumper rails on a bowling alley that are going to keep you from ever throwing a gutter ball, which in many respects is kind of what I think people are doing with variable annuities. Let, let's start there. Yeah, let's unpack the study for a second. And then I think the philosophical debate is actually the most interesting part of this. But the reason this study is so interesting is because a lot of advisors or financial planners tend to steer away from variable annuities for a few reasons. I think the biggest one is that they're expensive products. So if you're looking to get into a variable annuity for investment reasons, well, you could just buy those same mutual funds and avoid one, two, or perhaps even higher than that percent of expenses that you otherwise wouldn't have. So the easiest way to get ahead is by not going backwards. So by eliminating those fees, you're automatically off to a better start. So that's that's one of the reasons why financial planners you know, tend to scrutinize variable annuities heavily. But you, you've got some people that in their practices, they focus on it, right? I mean, you, for, for every advisor I know that doesn't like annuities, and for what it's worth, I'm, I'm in that camp. Now, I'm, I'm not of the belief that there's never a use for an annuity. Uh, and, and some advisors do that, right? I mean, you hear, used to hear Ken Fisher uh, before he put his foot squarely in his mouth on, on TV all the time. Ken Fisher hates annuities and you should too, right? That was literally the ad they were running. And and I, I tend to be in the camp that doesn't like them very much for a couple reasons. The cost is the main one. And it has never been, in my opinion, more expensive to buy income than it is right now, right? And, and the environment we're in has made this really, really difficult. Just think about it this way, and I'm going to oversimplify this a little bit, but annuity companies are, are insurance companies. These are insurance contracts. They've made a guarantee that they're going to pay out some amount of money to you. They have to keep cash on their books in order to support those guarantees, right? They are regulated in a way that they have to be able to say, yes, we can 
honor those commitments. They're not making much money on that cash. And the annuity companies have not have not said, you know what, we're not interested in making profits right now, so we're just going to take those losses. They have priced up their contracts. So if you've got an annuity that's 10, 15 years old and was on kind of these old schedules before interest rates really, really started getting low, you're probably in pretty good shape. And I'm not telling anybody to go get rid of their annuity or do something different if you've already got one. But if you're buying an annuity today for income purposes, I don't think that income has ever been more expensive than it is right now. Right. And there are a lot of things we can get into on annuities. The taxation of annuities is a big one. But in this study, what they're really focusing on is in the investing performance within the contracts. So in an annuity, you hold mutual funds, oftentimes the very same types of funds you could hold outside of an annuity. And what they found is the people who are invested in those funds within an annuity performed better than people who are investing outside of that annuity wrapper. And I think one of the things they addressed is from a behavioral perspective, it feels very different to change the investments within a contract like an annuity than it does to go into a brokerage account and tinker and change. For some reason, it feels perhaps like you have a lot more per- a lot more permission to go and buy and sell within a regular investment account where an annuity feels a little more off to the side and untouchable. See, that's interesting because... Uh, you're right. And some contracts for, for annuities even have limits on how often you can change them, right? It's not always like a brokerage account where you can you know, buy or sell something every single day. It might be limited to, to three or four adjustments per year. Uh, and and, and I, I've definitely seen that. But the other thing that I think is interesting here, and, and probably what they're getting at even more so than it being difficult to change, is simply that people aren't as worried about their accounts if they've got guarantees and things baked into them, uh, which is the other reason that people tend to buy a lot of annuities. These are typically called riders, and it's normally an additional cost on top of your mortality and expense charge, which is kind of the core insurance contract. Then you've got the sub accounts or the mutual funds, and then you've got these guarantees or income products that they can t- sometimes slap on top of that that add another layer of cost, but it'll say, you know, if your annuity high watermarks at X number of dollars, right, once you achieve that level, they will lock that in for you. So even if it drops from there, you'll still get the income as if the account value hadn't dropped. You'll, you'll see things like that. Again, I'm overgeneralizing and it's a, it's a product set that's got a ton of uniqueness, both at the contract and, and at the general level. But um, my take when I read the headline was that that was going to be the answer, is that people with guarantees aren't as concerned about selling things because it's okay, we locked in a high watermark. Funnily enough, that didn't occur to me at all. I just figured they were talking about the investment performance and that people think of it less as something that they should be doing something about and more as just something that they have that that sits there. And the premise, I believe, is really interesting because... I think at least what I interpreted your question to me was, is is this relevant in the financial planning world? Does it matter that people tend to have better outcomes in a product like this, even if we as financial planners tend to not prioritize them? And should we start presenting people with something that we know the behavior will be, be better in? Or should we be training people to behave better and perhaps differently than they otherwise would? And I thought that was a really interesting question. 
I, I do think it's an interesting question. And I even thought about this same thing in terms of golf. And and uh, I, this is going to be hopefully a very brief aside. But when you think about the golf swing, most people have a, you know, if you compare like a professional versus like an amateur, right? We swing much slower than the professionals do. We make a lot more mistakes. We don't make as clean a contact. So literally, we use different equipment, more forgiving heads. We use shafts on on our golf clubs that have more flex to them so that even when you're not swinging as fast, the head kind of moves through quicker than it otherwise would, right? You make all these adjustments because you're basically saying, I can't do this like the pros can. I'm going to use equipment that was built for me. That's kind of almost how I equate this, right? Like, are, are we saying to the investing public that, hey, listen, studies show that you're not very good at this. So what you should be using is a more forgiving product that's not going to let you make as many mistakes, even if you're kind of bad at it and you make some dumb choices that you're going to be okay. Is that what we're saying to people with these annuity sales? I think it might be. And the example that came to my mind was working out, you know, everyone knows what they should be doing and going to the gym. You know how to lift, you know how to run. But if you're like me, you have a lot of trouble dragging yourself out and doing it, even though you know exactly what you should be doing. But if I pay a ton of money to a trainer, I'm going to show up. It's expensive. And he's going to have me do probably the same things I know how to do, except I'm going to do it. And in my mind, the question is, all right, should someone be like in my ear coaching me like, Daniel, it's, you know, you should get, you should get to the gym, wake up, do it early, get it out of the way. Or should the premise be that Daniel is not going to go to the gym? He's, he's being lazy. You should pay someone to be accountable to them. And they're going to drag you to the gym because you feel like you have to. Uh, that's kind of the way that this formed in my mind when I was reading it. Well, and, and really, it's almost a couple layers of that, right? Because if under that analogy, you could think of the advisor as kind of the coach and the trainer. And then you still have the element of what product are you going to use, right? And and so I think what we would hope is is for for folks that are working with us or, or or any other advisor that they can coach them through that process, right? If we've done a good job at evaluating your risk tolerance, if we've done a good job at helping you evaluate what your short and longer term cash flow needs are to make sure that we're not putting short term needs at risk, hopefully we're encouraging that better behavior because we can always go back to that conversation and say. Don't worry about it. Everything we need for the next three, five, six years is not being affected in a market downturn. And that's what we hope is going to lead to those better outcomes. But certainly having a product that simply doesn't allow you to experience those losses or or is kind of burying how those losses show up for you uh, is, is another way to do that. I, yeah, I feel like it feels very different getting an annuity statement, which you probably it looks different. It feels different. Than it does getting a brokerage statement where you know you've talked about this particular investment as opposed to talking about a product. What ends up being tough uh, in this, and and you and I talk about risk tolerance consistently on two vectors, and I think the two vectors are really important, uh, even in the order that we talk about them. And the first one is that capacity for risk. When do you need the money, and how much of it? Right. That that has to be job one is protecting those short term needs because we don't have any better predictive power than, you know, a magic eight ball and what the market's going to do tomorrow. We, we have no sense of that. The second piece of risk tolerance, once you figured out what your capacity for risk is, is your preference. How much volatility are you willing to accept in the pursuit of returns? 
while that's really important and we do want to ask people that and we want to go through that process of having a good discussion around it, what we also know is that people answer those questions differently when they're feeling good or bad. When the market has gone up, everybody wants to consider themselves a very aggressive investor. We hear that over and over again. Well, I'm very risk tolerant. What, you mean you like making a lot of money? Yeah, no kidding. Right. And and then the market goes down and people then go, well, maybe I wasn't as aggressive or maybe I'm not as risk tolerant as I thought I was. Or this right? is this is different this time. Right. Every yeah, time. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've I've been scared before, but this time the world is is actually on fire and, and this is a completely different situation. Right. But Ross, you don't understand inflation is coming. Right. Right. Yeah. That, so so those elements, people literally change their risk tolerance based on how good they're feeling, right? So it's not consistent in a way that we can bet on it. And I think in our version of this, I, I do think that we've tended to be in the camp that is trying to improve investor behavior. We're trying to educate. That's part of why we do this very podcast. But it's difficult. And you, the the worst time to realize that you're actually not as good at this as as you thought you were is in a crisis. It's in a, it's in a downturn, right? And, and so that's not when you want to be learning that your risk tolerance was was poorly assessed or that you didn't do a good job of being honest with yourself. So exploring the other part of that, the time horizon, with variable annuities, there often is a surrender period where you're not, you know, not ideally taking money out of this product. I wonder if folks have self-selected into variable annuities almost in a sense who have longer time horizons because they don't need the money and maybe the advisors did a really good job of screening people with shorter term needs out of that pool. See, that's interesting because in my experience, people with variable annuities wait too long to turn them on. So, so similar to the way social security works, variable annuities typically have different payout ratios depending on what age you are when you turn it on. And so it might be something like if you turn it on at age 60, you're going to get a payout of 4% of your benefit base. If you wait to 65, you might get 4.5%. If you make it to 70, you might get 5%, right? So people like to watch those notches up. You'd like to get an income of 5%, not 4.5%. And so you're encouraged to wait and wait and wait. Well, the game that the annuity company is playing is that they know if they pay you out for 10 fewer years than if you had accept, you know, started taking your payout at 60 the likelihood that they end up winning, quote unquote, right, and and not paying you out as much as they would have otherwise is in their favor. So they're encouraging people to wait, even though most people would be better off turning that income stream on earlier, even if it means not getting one of those step ups or, or notches higher. Right. It's a gamble on how long you're going to live. A hundred percent. Every year you wait, you're saying... I got I got a couple good years left in me and the insurance company is saying prove it. Let's go. Well, and 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 honestly, they are they balance their risk. People don't even think about this, but if you're in, an insurance company, you have the opposite problem with life insurance that you do with annuities. Right? Your risk in an annuity is that people turn on the income and then they live to 120 and the insurance company's on the hook to pay you out for a bunch of years because they guaranteed you lifetime income. On the flip side of that, if you die early and they're now paying out life insurance claims versus, you know, waiting way longer where they make more money, right? So as an insurance company that honestly, if they're balancing their book correctly, they don't really care, right? Because they're going to have one problem or the other and they can price their products so that they kind of keep themselves balanced. 
if you think about their policyholders the same way you would think about risk management in your portfolio, they're doing that. Right. It's like managing a sports book or something where you're playing both sides of the coin and making sure you get the money either way. That's it. No, it, that, that's 100% what they're doing. And again, that's not wrong. That's their business. That, that is how you manage risk if, if that's what you're, you're betting on. And I don't think they're rooting for any one individual to like not make it very far. But, but at the product level, that's what they're trying to, to balance out. So going back to investment behavior or, or investor behavior, we were talking about annuities. And naturally, when I think of annuities as an insurance product, I also think about life insurance. And the thought that came to mind was people insurance salesmen often pitch whole life or permanent life as a savings vehicle. And uh, even though financial professionals often discourage using life insurance in such a way when you don't otherwise have a life insurance need. Except for the ones that only sell life insurance. Right, exactly. But you know, from the investor behavior standpoint, the other thing I was thinking about was saving. Insurance premiums feel like a bill that you have to pay. Whereas paying yourself feels optional. And, you know, I was putting myself in the mindset of someone who otherwise wouldn't be a saver, but has this insurance bill that comes every month that they're just in the habit of paying. And even though it might not be the ideal way to get there, you know, you fast forward a couple decades, maybe magically they have a huge pile of savings that they otherwise wouldn't because they wouldn't have, have saved for themselves. So the other thing that, that I get to here, uh, and this is kind of, a slightly different philosophical argument, but but one that I think is relevant is how we define a successful retirement. Uh, and there's like a couple different ways that this gets measured, and we've talked about this, but the most secure retirement is probably one that has an annuity built into it, right? If, if your primary objective is cash flow security, an annuity becomes an important tool for you uh, if you don't already have a pension or some other guaranteed source of cash flow. Right. So if somebody came to me and said, I want the most secure retirement, make sure I can't run out of money. That's what we would be talking about, or at least for some element of it. Uh, and on the other hand, if you're willing to accept more variability and you're going to accept more responsibility for that income stream, the likelihood is that you're going to have more money at the end and that you're going to leave more money as a legacy. Right. Most annuities, once they've paid out for a few years, they may have a death benefit or, or some form of a survivor benefit early on, but they're not l normally leaving a big pile of money for your next generation. So if giving money to your kids, your grandkids, to a charity is an important component for you. Annuities typically aren't very good. And either of those could be considered a successful retirement, right? We could be very happy with the most secure income. We could be very happy leaving a legacy. It really becomes a personal choice. But unless you're in that camp, of looking for specifically the most secure retirement, the annuity is a tough product. And then on top of that, when you when you pile on the fear that most people are bringing to us right now, which is, as you said, Dan, inflation, the annuity becomes a horrible product. If you're worried about runaway inflation right now, why would you be locking in an income stream that isn't really going to keep up? Because it's taking three, sometimes, you know, two and a half to, to three and a half percent haircuts by the time you get through all of those fee layers on the annuity, right? So, so I, I don't know. I, I haven't been moved by this study uh, or, or even by the theory that this is going to make people better investors. I think people should be working to become better investors on their own. I think we share that belief. And if anything, the most actionable step that came out of this was you and I dove deep into the Dalbar website, 
which I'm not saying anyone needs to do, but if you want to, we we got a kick out of it. Yeah, no, I'm I'm fascinated by this company because I, I've heard this this thing quoted forever, and then I really started thinking, all right, who is Dalbar? How do they make money? Like, why are they doing these studies and ranking whose statements are better? Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it they are selling some of these things on their website. I don't know if that's enough to keep them going, but um, it is a it is a fascinating rabbit hole to go down. It sure is. All right. So I think we can probably end the show there. Uh, If you would like to send us an email, something you'd like us to be talking about, check your balances at outlook.com. That link is also in the description of the episode. If you enjoy the show, definitely leave us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to. We look forward to catching up with you next week on Check Your Balances. Mm -hmm.